Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. No mahari mai, welcome to Mud and Blood, a podcast dark and grim. My name is Liam, and joining me today, as always, is my mate Matt. Sup, man, how you doing? You good? <laughs> good morning. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Um, 6.30 in the morning on a weekday, I've got work to look forward to, not not too distant future, so... Yeah, I'm wide awake, ready to go, raring to go for this episode. Absolutely. <laughs> well, yeah, you're you're up you're up early because you're 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 burning the oil, being the good working class man that you are. You know, <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> working for working class wages as well. Yeah. That's it. Yep, this is it, <laughs> um, and that's very relevant to today's episode. We are here at the suggestion of our patrons, so if this episode is terrible. Blame them. Um, we are here at the suggestion of our patrons to discuss the uh, proletariat, uh, the, the, the working masses, the unwashed and uncleaned, many blue class workers hey. that are out there. <laughs> I have had it, actually had a shower this morning. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Yeah, proletariat. Yeah, um, if you don't know what that means, just as Liam was saying, the it's the working class. It's another name for the working class. Um, if you look at different, um, taking it from a gaming perspective, take it back, look at different genres. Um, it tends to, you know, that could be peasants, um, commoners in a city from a kind of fantasy setting. Um, you look at more modern settings like Victorian or contemporary, um, and that's basically the working class. And then if you take it forward into the future, I mean, the working class kind of works from the not too distant um, past right up to sci-fi settings, really. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, the people who aren't in power, the people who don't have middle class jobs or the people um, fixing things, cleaning things. Getting shit done. Yeah, Getting shit done. That's the the ones. The grease that, that, um, what's the, what's that word? What's that phrase? The um, The grease grease that that winds the wheel? Is that the one? uh, I fucked it. I fucked up my my um my idiom there. Uh, <laughs> Something about the wheels of progress, but um anyway, grease, progress, wheels. You know what I mean. <laughs> we pearls aren't known for our wit, <laughs> <laughs> especially not at six thirty in the morning. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's that's what we're talking about, and um it's a good suggestion for the show for obvious reasons. Um, you know, you're talking about gritty and grim games the working class should feature pretty heavily. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, anyone who listens to us has heard us talk about rat catchers and stuff like that. And our various, Mm. um, you know, like, like a lot of the games that, that we talk about on the show, a lot of the games that, that inspired this podcast, um, 
you know, featured. Like when we're sitting here talking about not playing heroes and not, you know, like all that sort of stuff, a part of that is playing everyday people. And, you know, despite what, um, despite what a lot of things, even from our own history, right? The fact that history is often written by the people in the upper classes, uh, like a lot of things that you go out there and read will tell you, uh, will, will imply that the, the, the commoner as they were, the proletariat aren't really up to much. I'd, I'd argue that that's some of the more interesting and human stories out there. Yeah. So, um, Absolutely. Yeah. so yeah, it's, it's always yeah. good to get that shit out there. I think it's a good fit for the channel. Yeah, absolutely. We've talked around it in the past, um, talking about, especially in our sandbox episodes, we're talking about making the world come alive. Um, you know, although it's more in the look, talking about it more gen generally and thinking about NPCs having motivations and things like that. This one's very specifically, this episode very specifically is going to be talking about um, less about the proletariat as individual NPCs and thinking about them more as a force right as a as a group um and some more kind of um wider ranging things to keep in mind when you're um when you're using them to bring the to bring your environment to bring your setting to life uh before we get into it though um some kind of i guess wanted to talk about some games that really feature the working class because um obviously there's a lot of games out there that are quite heroic in scope and um, obviously, you can have the proletariat, you can have the working class in any game there as a backdrop. It's just that in some games, especially heroic games, they're only going to, you know, most of the time, the the um, the only time the PCs are going to be coming into contact with them is when they're buying shit or there's someone in distress and they're rescuing the poor villagers from some, you know, some terrible monster or maybe slaughtering the villagers because they're murder hobos. Um mm. You know, that's, that tends to be the interactions. They tend to, like, I'm not saying that's always the case, but I, you know, lots of, lots of um, games and campaigns um, kind of just gloss over them. They're there as a, as a bit of scenery and not much else. They don't really drive the plot. The plots are, you know, these big world changing events and the working class don't really come into that. They're the, they're the people that need saving kind of, and that's really not what we're thinking about at all. Um, so games that really feature them, feature the working class that you're probably going to have an easier time putting some of these, these things we're going to be talking about today into practice. Um, and this goes for both, you know, the, the working class being a part of the big part of the setting, but also, um, where the working class is an option for player characters as well. Um, and obviously Wolfrup is the big, is the big one, you know, Liam mentioned rat catchers already. Uh, we started our first couple of episodes on of this of this podcast were about Warhammer, um, and obviously Warhammer has tons and tons of of kind of common um, you know commoner type of careers. So that's mm. a really easy place to look um, if you're into fantasy. Yeah. Um, Aquilare is another his is like for me another one that I've I've played a game that I've played that also very much can feature. Um, the working class Aquilare is a Spanish game that has recently been bought um, by, or I'm not sure bought, but Chaosium have kind of swallowed it into their, their family of games. It's BRP yeah. and it's based in um, middle ages, Spain. And um, yeah, it just, it's kind of like Wolfrup in that there's a bunch of careers and they range from like, you could be a noble or you could be a, you know, any, you could be a farmer. It's kind of everywhere in between. Mm. Liam's playing in a game called The Dark Eye, um, which is a German game called Das Schwarze Auge here in Germany. 
And that also very much has a huge range of possibilities for um, for player careers, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, in fact, you can heaps. play. Yeah, if you can play like a that, slave in. I think you so can. Yeah, you can play no all sorts of stuff. It's a full range. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like I mean, my guy was just a traveling dude. He was like, you know, not particularly heroic or anything. He ended up being heroic throughout the campaign, but background-wise, was just a was just a traveling dude. And then we had a merchant in the uh, in the party as well. You know, which hmm. yeah, is fairly like it's a very wealthy merchant, but that, that that was because they had achieved stuff along the their life of becoming. Yeah, they they came from humble origins. Um, another game is um, Call of Cthulhu. I mean, the game lets you play hobos, you know, hobos all the way yep. through to to dilettantes. So um, it really yep. does sort of yeah, you know, like it's actually got built into it. Yeah, you know, the credit rating system, um, yep. which yep. you know like does a fairly good job of representing the the social um, sort of power that comes of class and the financial power, but at the same time. Like, you know, the game being BRP is fairly, you know, I'm actually noticing a, a bit of a trend here. A lot of D100 games in this list. Um, it seems it's, yeah. a, it's a game, it's, a, it's something that I think, you know, a lot of systems that aren't built tightly around balance and things like that um, can get away with exploring these more sort of varied, um, you know, sort of range of characters. Uh, another one is yeah. Traveller. Um, we put this one on the list because in a lot of ways you might be like, well, hold on, these people are exploring whatever, but like, you know, your characters start off massively in debt. You know, they're, it's, uh, you can definitely play the game sort of proper blue collar traveling through space. So it felt right that for Traveller and stuff to be in there. Um, and a lot along- I mean, If you're talking sci-fi, yeah, sorry, yeah. go on. Yeah, exactly. You 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 are beating me to the punch there, Matt. Um, <laughs> both Mothership and Alien, right, are both you know, proper blue collar sort of you know sci-fi games. Um, mm. Yeah, unsurprising considering they both have the same uh, <laughs> inspiration. But um, yeah, like yeah, sci-fi in particular, sci-fi, but also the entire um, cyberpunk genre. Uh, lends itself really well to normal yeah. people, extraordinary circumstances, which is what makes a lot of interesting RPG um, yeah, sort sure. of set up. Yeah. I think, yes, as you say, sci-fi, I think, lends itself really well because you tend to have these big, um, not just, not just um, you know, country-related um, things that can potentially, you know, be affecting people's lives, but it's on a galactic scale often, right? Yeah. Um, or at least on like a system wide scale, like you can have really big plots and it can have absolutely devastating impacts on communities at every level, planetary, countrywide, citywide, et cetera. Um, yeah. So you mentioned alien. I'm going to mention um, my favorite <laughs> rule set year zero engine, because basically all of them um, are, you know, very heavily feature the, um, the working class and basically all the games other than Year Zero Mini, which is a kind of, um, sorry, not Year Zero Mini, it's my own game, <laughs> Mutant Year Zero. Mutant Year Zero um, is about mutants in an arc. It's a very specific setup. Um, again, you're very, very grim and gritty, but all the other games like Vazen, you can play a vagrant or you can play a servant in that as well. Coriolis, um, could be running a cor- I'm going to be in a Coriolis campaign coming up soon, and I'm playing a um, a dock worker in that. Another player is playing a, a fugitive, and it's got those sort of that kind of wide ranging 
type of careers in it. Alien, we've already mentioned. Well, Forbidden um, Lands, you can play yeah. a peddler, you know, like. Yeah. Um, uh, Tales from a Loop, you're playing kids. Um, yeah. I mean, you're not playing, you're not playing like, I mean, I think you can play like a rich kid is like one of the options, but most of them, you're just like normal kids who go to school and then shit's happening in the background. You're not, you're not people who are movers and shakers. You're not heroes. You're, you're just kids. Right. Mm. Um, yeah. The OSR is another, another place I'd probably let um, you talk a bit more about the OSR, but there's, there's quite a lot of in the OSR that features. Um, yeah. Well, like um, a lot of games have like a, a level zero element, like, you know, funnels, for example, um, you know, Dungeon Crawl Classics, um, The Drain, which by the time this goes live, might still be maybe on oh it's on, a two-week thing isn't it on it's kickstarter yeah maybe uh, either way you know the funnels are a thing oh yeah where you go into a game and you're a nobody and if you survive yeah. you become a somebody now obviously after that point you're probably not necessarily playing the the working masses as much but it's still a thing um it's still it's still shows that they exist right um mm. in a way that like yeah i mean they exist in all fucking games in D, you're often talking to peasants but let's be honest they're thus there as fucking fodder most of the time so it's <laughs> it's cool when games actually sort of um show them off another one is electric bastion land um in those mm. failed careers i mean for starters again you all start off in debt and amongst those failed careers the majority of them are pretty you know sort of working class um yeah, you know, they're they're still interesting. They're still very unique, and they still have a lot of character. Yet they are the lower classes um, a lot of the time. Uh, so, yeah, and you get the yeah. same thing as well um, outside of the OSR as well. Like for example, in Blades in the Dark, most people you talk to when they start off, like sure you're playing gangsters, but a lot of them start off as sort of you know sort of street level sort of stuff, and then it goes up from there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's honestly, there's a lot of games out there that do it. There's an awful lot that don't, but there is a lot that yeah. do. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe if you're listening to this and we haven't mentioned your favorite, fucking come over to Discord and tell us. It'd be cool to to get an idea of all the <laughs> games out there that are uh, that are, are rocking the uh, rocking the peasantry, rocking the proletariat. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So. That's that's kind of giving a flavor of what we're talking about here, right? Those are some games to give you to give you. We forgot to mention kind of your point. one. Matt's writing, oh, shit. Matt's writing yeah. a game about being a fucking peasant, <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure we'll be referencing this the whole oh, time. God. Pitchfork. Yes. I'm I'm yeah. working on a game called Pitchfork. Um, yeah. Pitchfork is set in a pseudo Middle Ages um, Germany. It started off, and the reason for that is it started off as a Wolfra pack. I live in Germany. I live in rural Germany. And um, there's just a lot of, yeah, there's just a lot of things I could just look around at, like around the, the village I live in, for example. And I can <laughs> see lots of um, examples of, um, you know, Wolfrup today. Uh, you know, it's very, it's, it's very easy to see some things that I, I've got to be a bit careful here, maybe, but um, just go yeah, listen to a the lot of some cultures and things and some, some ways of life that have, <laughs> you can see where are probably have been established since the, you know, for like 700 years. In fact, many villages here have, when you're driving into them, have a plaque up saying, um, you know, 700 year anniversary for the, for the village. And it's like when the village was established, um, you know, so there's like villages around me, not the one I'm living in that are like really, really bloody old. Um, and anyway, 
anyway, so Pitchfork is like, that's the setting. And the whole idea behind it is you play, you play commoners in that village. And at the very beginning, you create the village together as a, um, as a group. And therefore you have, the players will have a much bigger buy-in of, for that village. They'll have a reason to stay. They'll have a reason to want to figure out what's going on, like the various intrigues and things that happen. Anyway, I'll be mentioning it more as we go through, but that's, um, for me, this is a big, a big, big, um, topic that I'm very interested in. I've been doing a lot of um, like reading of, of books specifically about medieval peasantry um, lately. But yeah, yeah. Thanks for, I, I completely forgot to show my own game there for some fucking reason. Um, uh, you got to show up. Thanks mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So let's talk about, let's talk about like, um, we kind of wanted to split this into two parts this episode. And the first part was talking more about, more from a GM's perspective about how to use the proletariat as um as npcs as as backgrounds as setting as setting sort of as a setting um uh thingy <laughs> setting thingy jesus and the second <laughs> half is looking at um maybe a bit more for players and thinking about um or even for gms to give some tips to players and um things to think about when you're playing the working class um as a player character so yeah Absolutely. you take it away liam <laughs> um oh shit okay so (laughs) um i think a big like i think a lot of games the the mistake they make is going i I don't blame them right like they, they go the avengers route where the people on the street don't fucking matter they only exist when they have to exist, and the rest of the time they're not fucking there. And like, you know, you might go and and you know, like you might role play one occasionally when you're trying to haggle with a fucking merchant, but the rest of the time you're just not dealing with these fucking people. And I feel like it's a really big way to make a world feel more authentic is to get mm. the locals' communities involved and to get the um. You know, the sort of the the working classes, the masses, even in a heroic game, get them involved, right? Because these people have a stake in the world as much as your fucking character does. It doesn't matter if your character is the lord of the... As a matter of fact, if if you're playing a character who is, like, in the upper classes of society, right, like... You got to remember that, like society in reality, is a contract, and you only get to exist at those levels because the people below you sort of accept that this is the way the world works. So, if you are playing in a game and characters are sort of, you know, maybe they're murder hoboing, maybe they're up to some real shifty shit, right? You, as a GM, you have you know the the masses <laughs> as a tool. To to react to that, you have that's a lever you can fucking turn, you know, to um to really sort of make the world react to what the players are doing. Um, like for example, yeah. um, there's there's two there's two sort of good examples of this that sort of stand out to me. One is um in RuneQuest, right? RuneQuest, for the most part, unless you choose not to, it's optional to choose not to, but by default, you are playing. Uh, and then in the newest version, especially, you are playing um, fairly heroic people. You're young, you're on the verge of becoming heroes, and it's a, like right on the verge of um, a prophesized time known as the Hero Wars. So a lot of people are see- seeing it as like this is their time to be a name that's spoken about and sung in songs and legend, right? Um, but 
the game focuses a lot on family and community and all that sort of stuff in, in numerous ways. One of them is like the community you belong to influences you. You might go on to become the hero that they all look up to, but you are still tied to them. If you get captured, they're the ones who will you know, ransom your freedom. Um, they're the ones who will expect you to sometimes go on some pretty you know, basic bitch fetch quests and stuff for them because you're ultimately their hero. Um, and on top of that, the game recognises that everybody, even that lowly peasant that you might murder hobo up is related to somebody. And it's, it's mentioned mm. in the book that like... You know, you might kill some guy. There might be some fella who might be a bit rude to you one day because he, you know, you come across him on the road somewhere and maybe he's got a lame horse and he asks you for help or whatever and then you tell him to get fucked and next thing you know, a squabble breaks out and you kill the guy. It can happen in RuneQuest. It's the sort of game that if you roll a critical, someone's dead, you know, so you might not even mean to, but you kill this person. That peasant that you've just taken out because you're a big hero, who cares about them, fly on my shoe, carry on, you know, their cousin is a hero like you and tracks you down. And that's a thing that's explicitly mentioned in the in the book, right? Now a big that's not necessarily so much the 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 working class reacting, but it's the working class having significance in a way, right? And I think this is something which we don't see represented a lot in a lot of like traditional fantasy games. I'm trying not to name the obvious elephant in the room. Uh, <laughs> another example I think of where you're not necessarily playing these people, but they are a big part of the game is like um, Rogue Trader, right? It's a 40k game. You're playing the crew on a rogue trading vessel Um you, you are the bridge crew, you are the heroes of the story, you're the ones going out there and doing the cool shit, you're the ones whose names will be in the history books when you discover new planets, etc. For example, we all know who Captain Cook was, we know his, yeah, he had people on his ship like Young Nick and stuff, but most of us, without having to go through a register, couldn't tell you who the fuck was working, you know, <laughs> like scrubbing the decks, right? <laughs> Rogue Trade is no different, except for in the 40k universe, your ships are kilometres long and have crews in the thousands and in and also in the 40k universe those people who are born in those ships will die in the ships their world is that ship they never fucking leave it well, very rarely anyway a lot of them will never leave it they will they're born will grow up and die working in the same department as their father and you know their their, their parents before them right so Every time I've played Rogue Trader, that's been a big thing. Is like, yeah, you're you you might be the Rogue Trader, or you're a member of his crew. You're making decisions about where the ship goes, what we fucking do, where we're going. But if you make decisions that result in the ship being damaged, if you make decisions that result in significant loss of life, suddenly that crew fucking matters. You know, if you cut corners and you don't buy good rations, that crew matters. And you very, even though you you are a mighty fucking rogue trader with a rip from the fucking emperor himself giving you permission to explore space, and you command a two kilometer long fucking frigate that can destroy fucking, you know, <laughs> like you you are a person of immense means, wealth, and power. But if the people on the ship decide you got to go, you fucking go. <laughs> there's no you know like unless you get fucking medieval on that shit and you you clamp down hard you're done and i think that's an important 
like lever for GMs to consider in any game that you're playing, that any game that involves a society of some type. Think, what do these people care about? Like if you're playing a game that has a um, like a, a rigid social structure, there are certain people born into cert- like a social hierarchy. Ask yourself, why? Why? Are the working classes tolerating that? Is it because the you know, the royal family gives to them and is kind? Is it because they oppress them? Is it because religion tells them this is how it has to be? Think about that. And then think about what these masses care about. And if the players fuck with any of that shit, bring it in. Make that relevant. Make it important. Um, mm. And then the world will feel much more alive. Um, it'll feel... Oh, it's just, I think that's a huge yeah. thing, you know, like, um, yeah, like it's, it's easy for us to like the trope that we think about in fantasy, right. is like, you're the Lord. You can do whatever the fuck you want. You can say whatever you want. People will do what you tell them. Remember that and throughout a lot of our history that a lot of societies were much smaller and we're talking, we're not talking about thousands of people. We're talking about hundreds, like hundreds or dozens and we're talking about family groups and a lot of the peasantry will have a relative that's important or they will have a vested interest in what those important people are doing. Um, and those important people are only ruling really with the consent of the peasantry. Um, mm. So I, I think... That is something which should be embraced more uh, in games. Yeah. yeah, I think tying tying plots. This is another big thing. If you're a GM and you're running traditional plots, have a look at those plots with the lens of the the common folk, right? And think about how can I how can I change this plot so that the common folk feature a bit more. And I can almost guarantee you that any plot you come up with there will be a way that you can quite easily tie the common folk into it right because they are they are the they are the gears that i got to make it another idiom i can't finish <laughs> the gears that move the machinery of civilization i don't know what the fuck i'm trying to say i'm just making this shit up <laughs> um, but you know what i mean they're the people that get that 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 are behind a civilization they're the people that make things work they're the people that make sure things get done that you know, to make sure that, that those, those cogs, those cogs are running. Um, and yeah, I think that's a really important thing. You mentioned the Avengers at the beginning when you're first talking, um, first talking about this, Liam. Um, and I think that's a really good distinction to make there is if you think about the Netflix, um, Marvel shows like Jessica Jones and Luke Cage, um, think of the difference between the Avengers and them. That's very, that's a very mm. good way to think about heroic fantasy gaming and gaming that's more focused on the common folk. Because, you know, Luke Cage and, and Jessica Jones specifically, um, you know, they are, they are working class people. They are struggling to make ends meet. They are interacting with people on the street all the time. They're helping, you know, people are in need and they're, you know, especially Jessica Jones, who's frankly a bit of a, um, She's not very. She's not a very nice character, right? She's not a typical hero at all, and um, you know, she's often grudgingly pulled into people's problems, and it might just be as simple as that they're her neighbors or they're part of her community. But that's a big, big part of those of those TV series, and um, you know, it's still part of a heroic um, genre, right? It's still technically superhero, 
um, a superhero genre, but it's a very different lens to take. And that's kind of the point. Like you can, you don't really get that at all with the Avengers or the, the kind of the solo, the like solo outing films oh, from the members of the Avengers. No, in the Avengers. Maybe Spider-Man, maybe Spider-Man, right? That's Cause that's, that's, cause that's, that's because different. he's the incredible neighborhood Spider-Man. That's yeah, the whole exactly. point, right? Yeah. Whereas like a lot of, a lot of, um, like the Avengers stuff, especially the the big, you know, where the whole ensemble is there. Um, what goes on is like, you know, oh, if, yeah. you see a whole city get crushed and yet yeah. we're only supposed to care about the emotional investment of like that one hero dying <laughs> and yeah, everyone exactly. like, oh no, my friend's dead. Ignore the 100,000 dead people behind me. <laughs> my friend over here died <laughs> and that is tragic. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. yeah that's, exactly. That's how a lot of traditional role play games play. <laughs> that's like, I mean, yeah. hey, if, yeah. it's it's cool. It's fun, right? Like, but uh, there's a lot of potential to to make it more more interesting. I think. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think a good example, right, is look at um, look at Carrying Company. Sean does this very well, right? So, throughout Carrying Company, um, you know, like we have. The uh, the whole sand the sacks of sand plot and things like that, um, yeah. that you know entirely evolved around you know like feeding refugees and people struggling uh, in a post conflict. We had the refugees that we um we escorted and handed over to a cult, right? Like the, these were stories which you know those people. They, they were there, even if we chose to sort of turn a blind eye and push through because we were thinking, you know, about our um, our own sort of <laughs> our own pockets. Um, like I think that sort of stuff is an example of how it can be used. Yeah, in, in there was still a consequence, way. right? Even if it's just an emotional consequence. Yeah, um, absolutely. For our characters, it, like there was there it, they weren't they weren't just it wasn't just a all right you've escorted these peasants. You've been paid. There's there's your money, so you can buy a new breastplate or whatever. You know, yeah. um, it had it it mattered, and I think that's that's the big point here, right? Is that it needs to matter. It's it can't just be um, if you want if you want to really focus in and and really bring your environment to life. I think I think that's really, you know, that's really this is the important thing is make make community make make the common folk matter a bit more. Yes, and. How do you do that? Um, that the, the real big thing is to try and is to try and tie the the, the those that working class the 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 common folk somehow into um, the story. Make it relevant, right? Bring the focus, um, you know, onto onto those people. Make their problems a part of the story. Um, don't just make them two dimensional characters. Make them really fleshed out three dimensional characters mm. that crop up every now and again their relatives crop up every now and again um you go to an inn somewhere later down the road and um someone's heard of you because their their cousin you know there's like these these like these knock-on chain this like chain of um of effects that happen that kind of lead to the things that you your interactions with the with the common folk actually matter and just those sort of simple things even if you're playing in heroic fantasy will help to bring the the like the setting more to life because it's then populated by real people who matter and who are relevant rather than just people there to you know um sell you weapons and armor and yeah and, and like give you quests. Uh, well, the way you can do that is like these are the people who make up 
communities, right? Like the the most communal elements of society are the ones generally lower down the rungs of the ladder because it's only through working together that they can survive. It's not like a, you know, they can't lock themselves up in the castle and have supplies bought to them. They they need to, you know, work as, as part of a bigger thing. So, you know, like, yeah, you, you might be on a quest for some king or you might be working, you know, um, for a big corporation in some space game or whatever. But, you know, like when you end up having to go into these small communities, there could be, there's still important figureheads within those communities. They're still working class, but there's still people that they look up to. It might be a local priest, a local community leader of some type, maybe a, a family matriarch or something, right? And you can include these characters and they can wield power in a way that makes them almost equivalent to, you know, your lords, ladies, you know, um, powerful corporations, whatever, whatever your thing is. But, like, that stuff's still key. Like, in the RuneQuest example um, I was used before, right, there's one where I was, I was, my character was the, uh, not RuneQuest, sorry, um, uh, Rogue Trader. I was the Rogue Trader. I commanded the ship. Right, it was my ship mm. by family right, and my father had had it before me, so on and so forth. Right, um, and there was like some, um, in, like the, the, there was issues going on between like people working in the warp section, the people who lived in the warp section of the ship, and people who worked in like the the other some other parts of the vessel. I can't remember now. Um, and like that was a big political fucking drama trying to deal with that. And like I was playing a um a real arsehole sort of guy who was based on um in uh, the movie The Bounty, Anthony Hopkins um, plays <laughs> like an arsehole commander of the bounty. It's based on a true story. And um my guy was based on him. So I just wanted to go down there and say, You will do what I fucking tell you, which is initially what I did, and that just made things worse. <laughs> you know, so it was like these are things that you can bring in there. Like these people's concerns are real, and when things happen in the world, they have bigger consequences for those people, right? Like, um, if you are tasked with protecting, I don't know, maybe you have like a mission where you have to go and rescue some hunters that are out there. Um, they've gone missing. You have to go find them. Or like a, some miners somewhere in a cave. You go out there and they're dead, or you fail and you don't you don't rescue them in time because something goes wrong. Whatever, whatever happens, these people die or get captured or they're they're gone. They're no longer functioning in that role. With that role unfulfilled, that will have a knock on effect. You know that people are dependent on their income. People are dependent on whatever resource those people are bringing in. And they, you know, how they react to your character, like your, your player characters after that point, really depends on what the stakes were for them. And you can showcase their reactions to it. You know, often in, in games that have like community mechanics and stuff, what, what we care about is the, the numbers on some sheet somewhere. But embody that through the um, experiences of the um, of the, uh, the, the the proletariat, as it were, both ways. Like if your characters go out and do good things, and maybe they clear out their fucking dungeon of monsters that have been terrorizing the the, the landscape, maybe suddenly it's you know your people are better fed because there's less competition for food or whatever, um, and then they are more grateful towards your characters, and your characters start becoming you know like. Heroes of the Masses, which in itself introduces interesting dynamics because maybe the local lord gets jealous.
Ellis that you are seen as the person who saved his people, not him who hired you to do it. You know, and yeah. then suddenly that introduces some fucking tension because he's like, hold on, they're my people, not yours. You know what I mean? There's a lot of room here to really, you know, make make these people a, a, the, the 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 character of your society in a way. Um mm. And you Absolutely. so many things you can do, which is has the potential to have some genuinely like emotional moments. Um, because at the end of most I'm, I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that the vast majority of you listening to us right now are middle class or below. <laughs> Probably middle class. Because RPGs is not the cheapest hobby, but you're probably you're <laughs> probably true. not you're probably not upper class, right? As a result, you see yourself in these people, probably. Mm. I'd hope so. Yeah. Um, yeah. In a way that you don't necessarily see yourself in that king that's upset because you failed to save his daughter, or you don't see yourself yeah. in that fucking whatever you know, like. And this, yeah, that brings up another thing, right? Because a big, I mean, we've, we've had some fairly big elections, not to get political. We've had some fairly big elections recently, um, around the world, shall I just say. Yeah. <laughs> um, and a big, big part of the working class is that they don't have, they don't have power, right? Even in a democracy, they're still, um, subject to the whims of the people who of like the ruling class, if you will, if you want to think about it more as a, as a fantasy setting, and that's absolutely something that needs to be taken into consideration as well to really to really make that dynamic come alive. Um, you don't have they they won't feel like the working class without that juxtaposition of being kept in that position, right? Mm. Not only that, but like you know, your your rulers <laughs> to to borrow on current events a bit. Your rulers, that you know, when I said earlier, like why do your people accept this balance of power? Right, it might be because your rulers are lying to these people and playing on their fears, and these people, you know, like support you know, these rulers and they believe things that are being, that are fed to them as lies, right? And it's really easy for your characters to maybe take that out on them and to dislike them for it, whatever. But at the same time, I think it's important to remember that they're, they're a part of a bigger thing. They're a part of the living, breathing world, right? Um, mm. Yeah. 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 And I think that's really important. Um, I'm, I'm kind of mentioning this as well, because I was just thinking about, um, my own game Pitchfork and the, the village creation you do at the beginning, because that's really very much doing what we're talking about here is is how to make the make the the NPCs in the background uh, relevant, right? And the first the first step in in creating the village is the is the village itself, like the landscape it's in, what's happening around it in terms of um, you know other other things you like the geography, what oddities and things are in the in the area. And the second part is about building the community. And the very first step in building the community is coming up with a ruler. And um, I, I felt when I was make, doing that as like a design choice, I felt that was really important is that the entire village is developed in the context of who is, who is in charge, basically. Um, and I think that's also, I think that's really important for any game, really, if you're, if you want to focus on the common folk is um, really have a think about the, the powers that be and they don't even have to be, they don't have to be malevolent. They can be benevolent. It can be, or they can be like a neutral force, like a, like a common, like a, a modern day democracy, but have a think about um, the sort of 
things that are happening from that top level that that escalate the that kind of um trickle down and affect every, like people at the the kind of um the lower rungs of society the working class and yeah, that, I mean that could be anything. And you look at the further, like the further away from contemporary times you go, the more extreme it tends to get, right? You mm-hmm. look at the fantasy or historical settings from like the medieval age, and generally speaking, the ruling class are completely um, using the working class, right? They are they are um, tend to be um, absolutely malevolent. Um, if you want to go the kind of pantomime route and take it to an extreme, like they are using the the, the proletariat are there to keep the wealth coming in, like to make sure that they, that they stay in power. And if they are ever out of line, then they come down really hard on them. And the further, often the way it goes with sci-fi tropes going in the other direction is exactly the same. And it, sci-fi tends to, not always, you've got things like solar punk and other more optimistic sci-fi type of things, but sci-fi as a, as a, as a genre out, even outside of gaming tends to look at current political or current societal issues and taking them to their extreme conclusions, right? It tends to want to shine a light on these sorts of things. And most sci-fi game settings do that as well. Um, and you get that, you get the, the cyberpunks where it's these faceless, um, corporations who are only care, who only care about profits. They don't care about people. And that's why you've got the kind of anarchist sort of um, cyberpunky typical protagonists out there trying to, you know, stick two fingers up to the system and say, fuck you, we're going to um, <laughs> we're going to cause chaos. Right. Um, mm. Mm. And I think that's a really important thing. I think that's a really important step as a GM when you want to make this come to life. The first thing to do is to look at um, the the like we're talking about the working class. Right. But it's an important thing to think about the upper class and the people in power and to put, and to, to really anchor the working class, um, you know, in, yeah, in their, in their position in society kind of. Absolutely. And that interplay between the two is, is what makes the class like division a thing. So yeah, focus yeah. on that. You know, like um, what, you know, again, I go back to my question, if you're world building, you know, you say like, you know, what do these people believe? Why do they accept this position? Like why why does the social contract dictate they give 10% of their earnings to whatever is taxes? And why do they think that that's fair? Do they think that that's fair? You know, if, they, if they're kind of only semi-okay with it, why? What are they getting a return for that? You know, and, um, yeah. and that goes both ways, right? Like, uh, yeah. so that's definitely like a, a thing to to dig into, just to chew on in your world building and then your and your your NPCs reacting to things going on. Like you might have leaders that, you know, really care about their work, you know, like their their masses as it were, their citizens. Mm-hmm. Um so like when the players are doing things that, you know, like aren't good for the citizens, maybe the leaders come in and and, and react, you know, because the citizens yeah. have gone to them and asked them for help. Um yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe the maybe your upper classes think they are helping the citizens, but deep down they're actually not. And so, how do you represent mm. that? Um, yeah, there's all sorts of things you can do there. You can it can be as simple or as complex as you want it to be, but it's something to really consider. Um, is the needs yeah. of the non-heroic elements of of you know the, like the setting, um, the non-powerful elements of the setting. 
Um, and I say non-powerful in the obvious sense because I'd argue, like, especially, like, you know, look, look all throughout history, right? As Matt was saying, in, in history, a lot of times there were people that were downtrodden by the upper classes. But a lot of the time, you look at how that turned out for the upper classes eventually, not great. Mm. <laughs> not great. <Yeah. laughs> like, we have, we have multiple superpowers yeah. in the world right now built upon. Even, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's some, there's some obvious places to look, like the French Revolution, right? But there's yeah. other places, like even in the medieval times in the Middle Ages, um, there was a massive peasant revolt in Germany um, in, I think, the 14th or 15th century. Um, and... I mean, it didn't go well for the peasants at all. Um, but the point is, like, um, even in a even in a society where things aren't going well, you know, it, it, things can come to a point where the where the working class says enough is enough. We fucking had it, and that can absolutely be a massive, um, you know, m- huge plot for the the setting, uh, like a larger plot for the setting that absolutely involves the working class. And your your characters can be your player characters can be right at the center of that. Um, another thing before we get too far away from uh, kind of the ruling powers, um, there's another there's another aspect to think of, and that is community um, leaders as well. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be the upper class who are driving things, but you know if you're having an interaction with a village or a small community, um, there are going to still going to be leaders within that community who are going to have their own agendas, and they're going to want to stay as leaders of that community as well. And that's another important thing to think about. Like you might be thinking, well, you know, I've, I've got this, I've got this plot coming up in my Wolfrop campaign. Um, there's no, there's no chance that any of the elector counts or any of their, you know, any of any of those people are going to be involved in this village because it's out backwater on the edge of the Drakvald or whatever. And you know, um, it, I just, I can't think of a way without really shoehorning in and making it feel um, completely unnatural that they would be involved. So yeah. yeah, it's an interesting plot, Matt, but it really doesn't apply. Well, the one thing that would apply is that there will be still be people making decisions for the good of the, you know, think of um, the movie Hot Fuzz for the greater good. Mm. Um, you know, people who are who are like leading a community and every community will have their leaders. And that's an, another important um, thing to think about. They're not going to have the same kind of, um, well, fuck that. They might have just as much. In fact, they might even be more, have more to do with the fates of the people of the village than the actual people in power themselves. Yeah. Um, because they're the ones that the, that the villagers are going to be, or I'm saying villagers, I'm really thinking about Wolfrop here or Pitchfork at the moment, but um, the community that's going to be their, their initial um, like step up the ladder, if you will, into terms of, of power levels is going to be whoever's in charge of their community. And that's another really important thing to think about when, as a GM, you're thinking about communities is not just the powers that be in terms of the ruling class, um, but also at the kind of zooming right down to the, to the, um, to the macro level, uh, sorry, the micro level is, um, you know, the people who are in charge of that community or not necessarily in charge, but who are pulling the strings, who are, who is who is kind of you know maybe manipulating things in the background or it might you know it could be the innkeeper it could be the the wealthy merchant um, who ensures that you know trade comes through the the village and everyone can kind of um, you know prosper from that whoever it is like yeah. that's they need to be an important part of it and what whatever plots or whatever's happening in that community that involve your player characters and however your player characters do do things for that community whether they do or don't. Um, it should absolutely be relevant with how those those community elders or those community leaders 
um, what they think about it. And that should have a massive impact on, on the community as well. I think that's especially true when you have more isolated communities, right? Be yeah, it, yeah. Like, um, like for example, the one I think of is like um, in a space game, like Traveller or whatever, um, Coriolis or whatever, you might arrive and find some small colony somewhere that was supposed to be a mining colony or whatever, and like they just do all this mining and they send their shit off and they get some like rations in return and maybe they decide, you know what, fuck this. You know, like, or like the only reason that they keep mining is because the, their local community leader who might be slightly corrupt is getting a bit of cash on the side from, you know, the corporation who employs them. So he uses his power and influence to keep the people working and while he lines his own pocket or whatever, and then you coming in to play with that, you know, should have, you know, some sort of dynamic and consequence to it. Um there's one adventure, it's a RuneQuest adventure, it's called The Rattling Wind, I think. It was a free one that they gave away a few years ago. Um, it's um, <laughs> it's quite cool, because like, in, yeah, the, the most powerful thing you can be in RuneQuest is like, apart from a god, um, which you can't be, but you know, but as a rune lord, right? It's someone who has ascended quite high in their particular faith, and they've become quite powerful. And... Um, a rune lord went to a village in the history of this game. The setup for this adventure is this rune lord went there and was being a bit of a dick, right? They were acting in the way that, to be honest, most player characters think they're allowed to act in fantasy games and was like bossing around the locals, you know, beating on them, stuff like that, because they weren't doing what he wanted. Um, and then there was a conspiracy with three prominent members of the community, like the blacksmith, the innkeeper, and um, like oh, the person who makes the horseshoes or something, whatever. They all got together, murdered this guy, and fucking buried his body somewhere. But because he's a rune lord, his spirit has come back to haunt the village. But it's like, I love that whole, like, that fucking, you know, that, that rural justice <laughs> elements of it. It's like, hey, hey, you may be a rune lord, but you're in our fucking village, buddy. And it's only through the magical power that this person's able to continue to torment these people. Um, and I, I find like that sort of a thing is, you know, something you should do. Like you're in these small villages, you know, miles away from the law and things, you know, why are these people choosing to adhere via, the social contract that the society has, what their community leaders, what are they doing, you know, to enforce or not enforce these things? And this is all stuff that you can sort of, you can flesh out and, and make a really interesting, um, interesting world. I mean, again, let's look to our own history, right? Like, um, you look at America's history and its journey from being a colony to a republic and how much of that was related to isolation uh, from, you know, foreign powers and, and like, you know, the, the, you know, the crown uh, taxing it without representation, et cetera. These are all things that did boil down to the masses. Now, historically, a lot of them didn't really give a shit, but a lot of them did, you know, and like you can look at that and you can then turn that into like a microcosm, a smaller version for your own game or whatever and and explore that. And there's a lot of room there for some really interesting plots and and things, I think. But you can yeah. choose to mechanize if you want. You can attach clocks to it, you know, all that sort of stuff. You can however your system tracks things, you can track things. Or you can just do it by what feels right, you know, whatever works for you. But there's a lot of room there to make your shit interesting, I think. Definitely, definitely. 
Yeah. And I think um, going back to just to recommend, I'm going to quickly pull up the uh, the list of our previous episodes. Um, but really, we've talked we've talked in a lot of detail about this in the past with our um, our sandbox episodes, like bringing um, you know making all this making all this relevant and um, trying to find it. The numbers <laughs> unhide. There we go. Right. Um, so in fact, it was all the way back to um, episode six. Bloody hell, this was a long time ago. Um, our sixth episode was about prepping for sandbox campaigns. And we start talking about, started talking about that. Um, and we continued it up, um, I think, also pretty, it was quite a long time ago when we had our second, um, our second one, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> sandbox part two was number 11. I was looking too far ahead. Our right, so episodes six and 11 um, so going right back to 2018, Fuck. um, Jesus, we might need to have to do this follow-up sandbox thing. Cause it's been a long time. It has been. Um, we do talk a lot about this, about bringing the, making the, um, you know, the, the NPCs matter, making locations, how to make them all relevant. I think this, we don't, again, we, we don't talk about the, um, the working class quite so much, but like, I think, I think what we're talking about here goes hand in hand really well with what we've talked about previously and advice we've given for sandbox, um, sandbox preparation and sandbox campaigns. Um, so yeah, just something to, just something to mention and to plug some of our previous episodes. If you haven't listened to them, maybe it's, maybe our next, um, GM kind of toolbox episode can be a return to, maybe we've got some other stuff we can talk around with, uh, the sandbox or after two years of doing this and looking at other other mechanics and games, maybe we can just do it like a little refresher, possibly. But yeah, cool. Let's let's talk about the second part of this, which is um, kind of what I'm also really excited to to kind of talk about, which is um, you know player characters as the working class, as as members of the proletariat, right? Mm. Um, because what we've just been talking about previously is very GM specific and how to, you know, how to make the working class matter as, as a back, as the background, as the, as the setting, as a member, as elements of the setting. Um, but for players and player characters, um, it's, you know, we mentioned at the beginning games where that feature the working class and all those games we mentioned do feature options for players to play working class characters. Um, and there's some things that th- I think some things to keep in mind and some things to um, to really focus on as players. And if you're a GM listening to this, I think this is also relevant, something maybe to remind your players of from time to time as well. Um, and the kind of the three big things we wanted to talk around here are um, bonds, um, consequences, and um, wonder. Those are kind of the three big things that I think are, are, are important to focus around. Um, so bonds is the first one, right? And um, I'm probably going to turn it over to, to Liam to start talking about this a little bit because when I think the term bonds, I, I think the one of my favorite games um, that really features bonds very heavily is Delta Green, right? Mm. Um, but that's that's also a fairly specific case of it. But it's a good place to start to think about um, about bonds and why do bonds? Why should bonds matter to working class player characters? Again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about um, about how, like, you know, when you when you're in the working class, you are very much a part of a community, right? Like, you rely on those people around you a lot more, and the people around you are generally more vulnerable. So, you know, your um, 
the way those interactions happen, be it like a th- in a family group, in a small community, whatever, um, I think is what really sells the experience. Like it's one thing to write on your character sheet, I'm a rat catcher, and then it never comes up ever again. Right, which is the way a lot of people play Warhammer. Yeah. For example, is they're like, "Oh, yeah. I was a peasant until this point, and then now I'm not." Right, <laughs> I am now yeah. an adventurer. Um, I think the way you really tie that in is, is apart from the obvious of still making them do a job between adventures, is um, is you know like have you, you even if you do go on to become a hero, right? Um, you're still your you know, your old mum is still living back in the fucking slum that you grew up in, you know. As is yeah, your family and your friends, and their needs haven't necessarily changed a hell of a lot, even though yours have. You know, you're worried about getting some magic armor. They're still worried about paying the fucking rent. You know, so like incorporate that. Um, how do you use your means and your power to go back and help your community or to to ease the suffering of your community or whatever? Um, yeah, there's. Yeah. I think that's sort of a a bond and a relationship and stuff is 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 a big thing to make you feel again a part of the world. And again, you can you can mechanize that if your game has a mechanical system such as Delta Green or. Um, sort of, you know, um, a lot of the burning wheel games and stuff like that have ways of tracking that down and things like that. But like, whatever, whatever it is that, um, or yeah, it could just be something that you're mentally thinking of while you play. Is that I care about these characters, or I come from this community, and this community represents me. You saw that a wee bit with Frederick and Carrying Company, although for him his community was the company. He really cared about the company and put the company above himself um, because he had grown up as a peasant. Growing up in the slums and fled home, and he wanted to become part of something bigger than himself, which to him was the company, right? But that could have just as easily been, you know, like the mines that he grew up working in or whatever, right? Like you could have, it could easily be something else. And then that's just something to help you get in character, I think, because I hope everyone listening to this has at least one person they care about and one person who cares about them in the real world. Um, mm. I'd say so because this is a social hobby. So unless you're Rodders who only plays with himself these days, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you, you play with other people. Um, so, Burned. <laughs> um, so like you know, the, these are things to think about, right? Like, and then again, by having those things, having those people, you can give them to the GM, who can then use those as levers to make the game more personalised to your character. Um, Identify the people you love so the GM can kill them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also, like, it can give you questions to ask. So, like, when yeah, some yeah, yeah. horrible thing happens to the town that you're in, your character's first instinct might not be to run towards the monster. It might be to run home and look after the people in his home suburb, yeah. you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. Or to ask yeah. the GM, like, hold on, there's this war happening at the moment. Um, it's been a while since I've been back in touch with, you know, like in, in character, in game, that since we've been in my my hood. But I can assume that at some point I've probably heard about what's going on there. How are they ex- yeah, suffering because of this war? Is this war affecting them? Do they care about it? Yeah. What, what are the concerns of my home community? Um, and then you can include that. And again, that introduces tension. That, that, that's, that's fucking rocket fuel for a GM because you might yeah. be getting employed to do one thing and then that community is feeling another and then that puts your character in this point of tension. Um, 
Yeah, and that's that's good stuff. There's no better way for a a campaign to go for as a player than to have your to have your have your player matter in the world, right? It's if you've never played a game like that, if you've only played kind of standard heroic adventures and dungeon crawls and that sort of thing, um, it's a great experience when you actually play a game where the world the world matters, right? It matters to you as a character. And also when the world is like responds to you, it's, it's great. It really, it really just changes everything. I mean, that that's bringing the role-playing to a completely different level. Yeah. Um, and these bonds are exactly how you work on that. Um, and if you could do this for any game as well, like it, it doesn't, you don't need to rely on a game that has a bond mechanic or looking at free leagues games um, where they have these, uh, these like relationships that you have with other, with other characters, um, you could just write on any old character sheet. You can just write like on the bottom of it or something like friend, like add a, add like a trait to your character sheet that just says NPC or friend or something like that. And, and just write like, um, again, I'm thinking of, of years, the year zero engine, how they do it. Cause I quite like that is identify somebody, um, you know, you could do, you don't have to do this at a character creation. You could do this like at some point in, like after the, after the campaign is started or, yeah. uh, you know, as you assuming you're running character. a campaign. As you discover your character, you discover their background or some, some things are coming out. Maybe the, the GM is doing some like collaborative world building with you and they ask you about like, oh, so um, do you have any siblings? And you'd be like, hmm, do I have any siblings? Yeah, actually, I have, I, you know what? I think it might be cool for me to have a twin that I've been separated from for a, like a decade. And there you go. Your friend is your twin. And like, why are they separated from you for a decade? Put a, like a line on your character sheet and boom, that becomes part of your character. It's on your character sheet. You're reminded of it. And it becomes part of it becomes part of your character, and it becomes part of the the story that's being told. It's also um, something that having that reminder there for you as a player is also going to help you to remind the, the the GM that this is relevant to you as well. Yeah. Um, so I think that's an important step as well is not to is to actually try and try and get it in writing some way so that it's it's as important to your as important to your PC as their attributes, their stats, everything else. Right. If it's not already a part of the game. Again, Delta Green is a great example of where this is built into the mechanics and you can't ignore it. It is it is central to it. Mm. But if it's if you're playing a game where that's not the case, just throw it on there. I mean it's a simple thing to add on, like friend or family or whatever. Like just just put a little a little trait on there and and keep it there. Make make sure that it's it's added and that it's concrete, a concrete part of your character. Yeah. Well, like for example, it's not exactly a one-for-one one thing because we're not necessarily the working class, but like in the Call of Cthulhu game I'm playing with my home group at the moment. The rest of the characters are all alumni professors or students at Miskatonic University. My guy's in, from Boston and he went to Harvard, right? Um, and that is already introduced an interesting dynamic to the thing because even when we're nowhere near either place, you know, there's a dynamic there of my guy isn't in with their crowd necessarily. Um, mm. And then whenever we're at, say, Miskatonic University, suddenly you've got this ability to say, hey, you know, I, I'm a professor here. Who's the professor of so-and-so? Do I know him? You know, um, and that's a thing that, that happens almost every um, investigation we go on. Now, that's the same that can happen if you have, tie your character to one of these local communities. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, and again, this isn't this particular piece of advice can apply to any social strata, but I think it's especially true yeah. in the lower classes, just because community is so important at the lower end of the social spectrum. Um, that yeah. you know, you suddenly if you're in the slums and your character is from that slum. Yeah, that makes a huge fucking difference to how you interact. Or even if like um, you, you'll the episode before this last week's release is a Valley of Blood episode, second episode of our season, and in that, um, I guess it's not spoilers because it's a week ago. Uh, in that, it's not not, <laughs> not that it's really significant anyway. But um, the 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 player characters happen to visit a slum, and it's like the slum of this particular city. Um, it, is, it is the next level of just, you know, sort of uh, depravity, right? And um, one of the player characters is now has worked his way to a position of power, but he was born in a similar slum. So he, he role plays that really well um, and is like, you know, advising the others, look, you know, these people don't got much, but what they've got is really important to them, so fucking respect it and shit. And, and his playing as someone who understands what it's like to be in that scenario pays off in, in, the, in the way the investigation goes. Um, and these are things which can inform your character. Like, like I didn't have to tell him that, yeah, that was entirely all on him being like, my character's from this background. It actually happens twice in the scenario of two different characters where the player character actually says, my person's from humble origins, so they're going to do this in this situation, right? Um, and not necessarily even take the easy way. They, they, they take the, the way that fits the character. And had they not been thinking like that, we would have it would have gone differently. It wouldn't necessarily have been less interesting, maybe. I don't know. But it wouldn't have gone the same. Um, so these are things to think about, you know, with your characters. Um, and and ask your GM. If, if you're playing a game and your GM's talking about a famine across the land, ask, well, how does this famine affect the community that my character comes from? Because that suddenly, if your people are suffering, that might inf- inf- like um, inf- influence impact. Yeah, fuck. Um, <laughs> it might influence how they react to things happening in the world, um, and like may- maybe they're quicker to anger because they 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 are stressed out at what's happening to their loved ones, etc. Um, this is all. These are all levers you can pull on, man. These are all fucking knobs you can turn. Go for it. Yeah, the second thing to talk around was about consequences, right? And um, what we specifically really wanted to talk about with consequences were, was about how events in the world should have consequences for your character as a working class character. And that's also something when you start having a campaign, it's often there's often a shift of perspective where your character goes from being um, an, a normal a normal person in inverted commas to being an adventurer, right? And those normal those big events that are happening, it's easy for them to um, not necessarily have much of an impact on your character, um, but they should. And I think I think this is this is the big thing to think about if you're playing a working class character. Is it, it, it again? This ties very closely to what we just talked about with commun- with um, being a part of a community and the bonds. But um, when there are big things happening in the in the setting, like um, a war is happening, or um, you know, there's some sort of 
an invasion of monsters or you know whatever or the the villages the the village that you came from is in is in a specific region which there's something terrible happening like a famine or something else um that shit should really matter to you as a character right and that should that there should be consequences the consequences of things that are happening um you know really should tie into that and i think that's the other thing to consider is um is to try and is trying not to think of your character as an adventurer, but to think about their roots and to think about where they came from. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure about practical advice for how to do that other than just as something to keep in the back of your mind. Um, and again, maybe that's some, maybe that's a place, I think it's less important than putting like a bond on your character sheet, regardless of the system you're playing. You could also add like background as a, as a trait, um, and put like a little one-liner about like where you came from. So it's a reminder, like, this is my background. This is, this is what made me who I am. Um, and to be reminded of that. Um, but it is something I think is important to keep in mind, right. Is, is to not just let the consequences of the, the things that happen in the game to just not matter because you're an adventurer now and your life has completely changed. Um, that might still be the case, but it's, you know, you still you still are a, a normal person and the things um that made you who you are will matter right if if things big things happen and they um they impact on your your community they they should matter um look at luke cage for example as again going back to the kind of the marvel um the marvel not cinematic universe but the marvel netflix universe whatever it's called um luke cage is like becomes this you know, he's, he's trying to lay low at the beginning, but he can't, he can't stop being a, a hero, but at the street level. Right. And, um, he kind of becomes more and more famous as people kind of learn about him and everything else, but he's, things are happening to his community and it's, it would be easy for him to kind of turn a blind eye, but to him, the community really matters. And, um, if there's consequences for things that happen, not to him personally, because he's like indestructible. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, I think that's the. I think that's a really important factor for playing it. Playing your playing a piece of the playing a. Oh my god, this is alliteration and a half here. <laughs> playing a proletariat PC um, is is making sure that the um, the things that happen in the world have consequences to you as a character and inform how the decisions that your character makes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and um. Like I think that's especially true when you know it's the um, the actions of the player characters that might be resulting in the consequences oh, yeah. coming back to them. You know that's yeah. one way to make those decisions come to roost, especially in like um that's one thing that uh, when I played um, Blades in the Dark, Sean, who's the player in Valley of Blood, was our GM, and we all said that we all came from the same universe, uh, the same orphanage. Um, and the, the actions of our gang result in things happening to that orphanage and that tied it, like made it so mm. much more meaning to our characters and and made our reactions much more personal and things. Um, and, the, you know, these are things to definitely consider. But also, like, um, even just at a basic level, right, like, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, the trope in, say, Warhammer is you have this career and then the campaign starts and you become an adventurer and you stop doing the work. I've always played it as the career carried on and you're just like you're only a part-time adventurer. I've always been slightly shocked yeah. just how many people don't play it that way. But if that's the case, if you're away and you're no longer doing this job that you're doing, uh, who was reliant on your income? 
You know, mm. like, were you helping feed your family? Are you still helping feed them? Because if you're not, you know, who's feeding them now? Um, who's who's moved into your position now that you're gone if you were doing an essential trade most villages only had one person who did a, like a specialist role if you've stopped doing yeah. it who's doing it now and what impact is that having on your community at large um, mm. you know these are things to think about to again tie like to make the home game sort of matter and also like even in Lord of the Rings the book not the movie that happens, right? Like they, they yeah. all go off, they all go save the fucking world. And then at the end of it, Saruman has gone and scourged the Shire. He's brought war home in retaliation for what was done to him. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then that that makes and also like um, Frodo had a dream of that happening or visions of that happening. So he was horrified that this horrible thing had happened to us, even though it was like very heavily glossed over in the book and wrapped up pretty quickly. It's still a thing that happened. There was consequences, even though they went off and saved the world, their little safe community that didn't even know any of this bad shit was happening suffered as a result. And that grounds the the characters in what's happening a lot yeah. more than, you know, otherwise. So that's um, a really nice that's a really good example because there was a nice juxtaposition there of the hobbits being heroes in Gondor at the mm. end of the events of of Return of the King. And then yeah, they go back to the Shire and they, they don't get the heroes welcome. It's resentment and like they're horrified. Yeah, exactly as you say, horrified at what's happened with Wormtongue kind of being this uh, evil bastard and um, yeah, and Saruman as well. Yeah, that's that's really great. And the, yeah, that, that's that's a great example of of consequences coming to roost and even flipping expectations around because yeah. you could you could totally steal that for a campaign, right? Where the, yeah. you've got characters who come from working class background. Uh, come from a kind of common stock, if you will, if you're thinking more from like fantasy terms, they save the world, they do something incredible. They are rewarded and looked at as heroes by the by the king or queen or whoever's in charge, like the people whose realm they've saved, right? And maybe the city, the capital city as well, like they recognize them. They, they you know, they're heaped with um, praise and, you know, people are throwing flowers at them in the streets and whatever. Then they get back home and it's like, no, now that, that hasn't that something else has happened. There's another consequence, another side consequence of this. Mm. Um, those people that that army that you defeated, you know how you didn't root, you didn't like completely decimate them. You know how they retreated, they fled. Well, this is where they fled to. Mm. Um, yeah, 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 definitely, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. That yo, you went and you cleared out that dungeon. Oh, good on you. But all those fucking goblins had to find somewhere else to live, and they come rampaging through here. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, they one of them heard in the cave that you mentioned your village, and they they've taken revenge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I hope the gold is worth it. Now, now, do you yeah. mind spending some of it to help us rebuild? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you can you can include all that sort of stuff. That's cool. Yeah. Um, and and again, a lot of this doesn't necessarily need to be mechanical. This is just sort of story, story fodder at this point. But if some games do give you the means to mechanize it, as I said, a real simple one is just chuck down some clocks. You know, if you're the games master, chuck down some clocks and fill them in when certain things are going on. Um, yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, clocks are good. We did another episode just to plug another one um, in this series actually on GM the GM toolbox about progress tracking. And we talk a lot about clocks and how to use them. And that's another very applicable thing you can, you can think about. Um, anyway. 
Yeah. Cool. Let's talk about the, the last thing we wanted to talk about with um, player characters as as working class, mm. um, coming from working class backgrounds, and that's um, wonder in a sense of wonder. Um, this doesn't necessarily won't necessarily apply to every single character, um, you know, character background. But for many typical working class backgrounds, um, they tend to be quite localized, right? You are you have a very specific role in the community that you work for, and unless you're unless that role is some sort of um, itinerant one where you're traveling from community to community, um, you probably haven't seen much of the world at large. Again, this is going to change the further you get to contemporary times with globalization and also when you get to sci-fi settings. But um, largely speaking, even in even contemporary and I mean, I'm just looking at my own village in Germany here. There are people I work with at my new job who have never never lived outside of like they I think one guy was telling me there's like a, a 20 kilometer radius from his family home that he's never lived beyond other than going on holiday to a few places like his his entire world is around the village that he lives in and the job he the job he has is is 10 kilometers down the road um so even nowadays it's that's still the case for a lot of people and I think that's something important to to think about as a player character in this time of you know the times that we live in with globalization and it's easy to hop on a plane not now of course with covid but <laughs> um you know many of us can think about you know going on holiday and visiting other countries and looking you know encountering um you know places that have completely different cultures and and that sort of thing um and imagine what that's like if if you did you weren't necessarily doing that by choice but the adventure the, the events of the of the adventure have kind of uprooted you for whatever reason and you're traveling around the the landscape of the setting you're playing in and try and think about that that sense of wonder that you might have when you're encountering these different places these different cultures these different things and again that's going to help bring the character to life a little bit more i think is by trying to think of your character in the terms of of their roots and where they came from and you know how are they how are they reacting to people who um speak a different language when you know, they grew up in a place where everyone spoke the same like, like dialect, even, mm. um, you know, people who have a different skin color, people who have completely different ways of doing things like they they eat food a different way or they eat completely different food or, you know, all these kind of or there's taboos back home. <laughs> yeah. Or there's taboos back home, which are absolutely not a taboo in this in this new place. And like, is that shocking for them? Are they are they like laughing about it? Are they like, you know, there's all sorts of things you can tie together here. And um that sense of wonder, I think, can really help unlock your character and add, a, you know, add a, add just add flavor to to a game. So, yeah. Well, I think that's another thing that um, Tolkien did remarkably well. Oh yeah. If you look at yeah. um, the way Sam in particular reacts to like yeah. the elephants um, or yeah. elves or anything like that, you know, and how for him. The, the, his motivation for doing everything is that he wants to get it done so he can go back home and be with his people, right? Like, he just yeah. wants things to go back to normal so he can go back home, take Frodo home, and, you know, go, you know, like, like deny their Brokeback Mountain moment for the rest of their life <laughs> and live in the Shire. But, um, like, yeah. like that, I think, again, that's a good example of, like, going there and just being like, wow, look at that thing. You know, it's really easy for us, the players, to sort of 
get jaded when like the GM describes to us a giant or something and be like, well, I've seen giants and books and stories and movies and stuff like that, but your character might not have even heard of these fucking things. Or if he has, he's, if he's in a world where they exist, he's probably more likely to be terrified of them than we are. So, you know, like, like emphasize that play that. Um, yeah. Maybe your, maybe your character is the only one that has to make a fear role because, um, there's something you've, you're encountering that everyone else is kind of like, they've seen it before. It makes sense for their characters or their, the place they've come from, but not you, yeah. you know? Um, and you're, you know, that's, that's a way for as a GM that you can kind of emphasize these things as well is to say like, hold on, hold on. I think your character needs to make a, a fear role or, you know, some sort of culture role or um, willpower role to not, um, to not get outraged by this, this strange custom that's absolutely taboo where you come from or something. Yeah, I think this is something which, um, like, mechanically, uh, RuneQuest does a really good job of representing with their um, character creation thing where they basically mm-hmm. you generate the history of your previous two generations. So one of your grandparents and one of your parents. And then things that happen to them in the timeline uh, will then influence you. And it's possible that you might have, like, an intense hatred for, say, the Lunar Empire. And you may not have actually ever personally met a Lunar. But because mm. they killed your father and or like you know lots of you they yeah. your village your your father's village which you never lived in was destroyed by these people um you have this tie to it right like this is something to consider like in your own games that's that's a really easy thing to sort of you know sort of represent as like you know these these biases these these cultural sort of uh, things that, that that might only exist because of your particular upbringing. Um, mm. you know, the, the sense of wonder you have about things, the sense of horror, the sense of hatred, you know, like these are deep-seated sort of things which are sort of almost bred into you or indoctrinated into you at a young age. Um, so, you know, represent those within your character. Um, again, that's true of any social strata, but I, I think that, when we're talking about social contracts, again, I'd argue that, you know, because I, I see it in my own job, the further down the social strata you go, the more tighter family units get, the more tighter communities get because they have to. Uh, and the bigger influence they have on one another at higher levels, you've got the means to break away sooner and it has less impact. So um, that's all stuff to really think about when you're trying to play a character with this sort of background, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's just that's just good. Um, like looking, thinking about RuneQuest, like that's that's kind of the life path system that yeah. um, that just instantly ties into character motivation, right? That's yep. just a it's got the wheels turning in my head. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, but that's again, I think that I think if you've got a game that that kind of looks at those things at character creation, that's a really great way of um, of helping to establish that that kind of rooting your character in in their background and making you think about how they view the wider world. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. I think, um, I think we're done, aren't we? Yeah, I think we're pretty much like, there's going to be some people out there who's going to be upset because we didn't like talk about mechanical ways to represent the bum. Like, I think this is really like a role play sort of discussion, oh, yeah. right? This is like Absolutely. a broader theory crafting thing. Um, like, like seriously, think about embracing it. A lot of people out there 
Even people who play gritty games, you might play like OD&D style stuff where you're not a particularly powerful character, but you're probably not thinking of yourself as a peasant, right? You're not thinking of yourself as someone who's got their background. Or a lot of people out there playing, you know, say Traveller, um, might glaze over the fact that, you know, that, that sort of thing's going on. They're thinking themselves as, you know, Star Trek without serial numbers. Um, don't be afraid to sort of embrace this stuff. I think it makes games quite interesting. Um, mm. Again, yeah. just to sort of pitch my own game a bit, seriously consider listening to Valley of Blood. <laughs> it's a completely improvised sort of game that is, I made, made it up as we went along, but social... Uh, Strata was a big part of that game. Um, so that's something which we touched on a lot, especially as an inter-party level. Um, there's, there's one NPC who's effectively mechanically a mirror of one of the player characters, the difference being one's a noble and one's not. And that interplay is quite fun. <laughs> it's sort of the, the more fun mm. role-playing that happens in the game. Um, so these are, yeah, definitely, let's, 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 let's think about the shit. Embrace it. Make it a thing. Um, there's a lot of good games out there that represent this stuff. So um, to look into some of them. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. That's a stun. <laughs> cool. Um, so, yeah. Um, how to find us. If you want to come chat to us and you're not already connected with us, uh, we're on most of the social media um, platforms. You can find links to all of them at mbcast.co, our website. There's like little links on that page to, to click on to, to find us. Uh, we're most active on Discord. Um, we're both in there every day talking to people. We've got a fairly big Discord as well. I can't remember how many people we've got now, but it's um, it's a lot, right? Um, I was just about to look, but it doesn't really matter. It is a lot. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> 408. So just over 400 oh. people. Um, so it's, it's busy, uh, but that's, that's the best place to catch us and to talk to us. Um, then Patreon, we have a Patreon, uh, campaign at mbcast.co mb forward slash Patreon. Um, we have lots of goodies. We've just overhauled it a bit for this year to, um, kind of look at some of the changes we've been wanting to make with the, uh, just to kind of streamline the, the podcast a bit, um, shaking up the tears a bit. And we're also releasing our episodes in a slightly different um, way now. So one of our tiers gets access to all of our episodes a week early. This is the fully edited, um, you know, finished versions of all of our, of all of our episodes, including the actual play stuff um, a week earlier than the public. And another tier just below that um, gets access to early access to the raw recordings of this one, including all the gaffes and, um, you know, the, the chat that, that Liam and I have before the show and after the show, um, that all comes out a few days before the, the public release as well. Yeah. Um, and there's a bunch of other stuff that we, that we do, um, including like rambles. We do, a, a exclusive episodes for our, for our, um, our Patreon supporters every month. We run a game once a month. Liam and I take turns running a game for our Patreon supporters. There's a whole bunch of stuff we do. So go ahead and look at that link and, um, if you have some spare money to um, to spare, you like our show and you want to buy us a beer to say thanks, then um, go have a look at um, at that. Yeah, definitely go listen to that. You get to hear fun things like Matt halfway through this episode telling me that he wasn't recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep. Stuff like that. So, you know, don't, don't miss out. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
my, if money's tight, which I know for a lot of people it is, um, we have another way of being able to support us, and that's through a drive-through RPG affiliate link. Um, there's a link. There'll be a link in the show notes. Um, basically, if you click on that link when you're buying things on drive-through RPG, when you go through to your check to the checkout and you pay, um, we get a five percent kickback from everything that you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, but it's in-store credit that basically um, we use to. Uh, buy games that we might want to review for the for the show. In addition, uh, Liam gets a little snapshot of titles that have been purchased in the month, and we do that for our um, our monthly ramble on Patreon. Liam goes through the list and kind of um, yeah, we have a little chat around you know what what people have been buying on our affiliate code. Um, so yeah, that's the other thing. Other than that, uh, we've got something coming up next, uh, like in two in two episodes from now, our next kind of normal episode uh, that we're kind of, ex- well, I'm quite excited, but I know Liam's probably quite excited about it as well. We're going to be um, reviewing Warlock, which is the game that Liam's using for his Valley of Blood actual play right now. Um, but we're doing it in a slightly different format than before. Before, we, you'd almost have four hours worth of content with an interview with a creator followed by a, a massive review of the game. We're trying to shake that up a little bit because um, for lots of lots of different reasons, but um, this is the first game where we're going to be trying a slightly different format, and that's going to be in the same sort of two to two and a half hour um, episode length. We're going to include both an interview with the creator and a higher level review of the game itself. So it'll all be self-contained into one episode. Um, and hopefully just a little bit more accessible for a lot of people. So it's, it's a new format we're trying out. Um, and I'm quite excited to be trying this because it's um, for us. It's it's um, there's a, a, a bit less pressure in terms of the whole the whole kind of um, the whole review. It means we can do more of them as well because it mm. is less um, less high pressure, which I think um, is good. A lot of people are going to like as well. So anyway, that's to look forward to in in two episodes time. Absolutely, I'm looking forward to it. And last but not least, the music that you hear on our episode is by Danheim a Danish musician who very kindly um, lets us use his music for the show. And in fact, I reached out to him on Facebook Messenger recently to ask about um, some, ex- like we've been using his his um, his music. Sorry, we're starting to release stuff onto YouTube as well now. Um, this is actual play stuff. It's, it's nothing extra. It's just our actual play stuff that's going on YouTube to reach potentially a slightly bigger audience. And I thought there might be implications with YouTube with using his music on it. So I'll just reach out, make sure he's cool with us putting YouTube stuff on because he has a massive YouTube channel. And um, I got an automatic reply saying he's he gets lots of messages. He can't reply to them all um, personally. But he does specifically say that he's very happy for people to use his music in their own in their own in their own projects and stuff. So he's just I was just really I was just kind of like awed by that a bit. Like you don't even need to ask him permission anymore if you want to use some of his stuff. Mm-hmm. Um I'm sure there like there are definitely limits to how you would want to use that but um he did give us permission right at the beginning when we started the show to use his music and we're we're grateful to him we're giving him a shout out in every episode so there you go check him out Danheim um yeah anywhere you can find music yeah absolutely it's good stuff it's good stuff it's it's very I mean like you listen to any of our music on our actual plays and stuff like that all of the introductions and things like that have all been um have all been Danheim so scope it out absolutely cool that's us thanks for listening cool cheer fire note kaki eternal
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit